Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about anyone being ashamed. You can now hear inappropriate conversations on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. On-demand news, talk, and more on your mobile phone. The latest episode is always available for you, no syncing needed, and no memory or storage wasted. It's available on your iPhone, iPad, Android phones, and beyond. Downloading is easy. Go to Stitcher.com or check out your app store. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Last week, I spoke a little bit about my conservative credentials on the question of war and warfare and you know, whether it's appropriate to use extreme military force to end conflict. And today I want to talk about my conservative credentials from a theological perspective. And what I mean by this is not what we would traditionally call conservative from a political spectrum, liberal versus conservative point of view, but the other way in terms of saying, what does it mean to be conservative toward scripture? What does it mean to base a lot of your theology on what Jesus said and not on what someone who came along hundreds of years later might have interpreted Jesus to mean or ignoring Jesus altogether and relying instead upon things which happened decades after or centuries before his coming? And one of the things about you know this concept of you know looking at Scripture and taking seriously what Jesus said and what Jesus meant and not being afraid to look at what's going on in the world today and looking at it through his eyes one of the things that you find out pretty quickly is we make a lot of huge mistakes, both within the church and within our society, when we make crucial little errors on even something as subtle as a pronoun. So when I talk about this being an episode about you know, what does it mean for anyone to be ashamed, I'm literally talking about a passage of scripture where we're talking about any one of us being ashamed, as opposed to what you hear so often in political talk about us being a quote-unquote, Christian nation. Now, I've done this before. In March of 2011, I actually shared, as close to word for word as I could, a message that I'd shared in church in front of a congregation to actually share a sermon, for want of a better word. And a lot of times I think people would hear that and say, well, hey, this is not going to be for me. Because either we have this notion that, well, if I'm not part of that religious faith, that I don't need to hear that perspective. Or we assume that we already know exactly what's going to be said. We've heard this before. We don't need to hear it again. Well, let me suggest to you that the message that I'm going to share today, and again, doing it as closely as I can to the way it was shared in church, is probably not what you'd expect to hear in church. And to our shame as a group of you know, religious institutions, as Protestant denomination, you probably wouldn't expect to hear this upcoming Sunday either. But trust me when I say that it is scripturally based it is sound doctrinally, and from that perspective, it is unmistakably conservative. So give me just a minute. I will share a couple of words of Scripture which support the message, and then pretty much the bulk of this particular inappropriate conversation is going to be me sharing a message called, Anyone is not a group. It's you and it's me. Okay, the scripture passage that supports the message today is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27, through chapter 9, verse 1. 
Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapters 8 and 9 Any one of us is not a group. It's certainly not a nation. It's you and it's me. If you like food and talking about food, then why not listen to Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Lind. You can find us on simplysyndicated.com or download through iTunes. Let me start with a disclaimer. I am not my government. My country is not me. As a citizen of the United States of America, I am part of it, but only a part. There is a trend that denies that our government is simply of the people, by the people, and for the people. Like it is actually something more than that. It is not. Not a sum greater than its parts that can solve all of our problems if we only surrender all unto it. And not some evil institution that is trying to destroy our culture and our freedoms. It is, to put it simply, the people of our representative democratic republic. The flip side to this is the government does not trump the individual in our society. The government is represented by the people. It does not represent us, though. Nothing our government does can make any of us holy. It is very important that we, as Christians, understand this. Holiness comes from the sanctifying grace of Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him. There and there alone. Here is how the Bible describes it in Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, 
and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. The book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Governing is dirty business. We can't make a nation holy, and it cannot make us holy. Although I speak from a position of orthodoxy and in harmony with Scripture, I know that powerful forces disagree with my position. The worldview of Francis Schaeffer has been interpreted to mean the exact opposite of my point of view. Oz Guinness, a different drummer, who has cited Schaeffer's influence, has called Christians to seek and speak to leaders in government and industry. Both men believe that these opinion leaders can set us all collectively on the right path. Some have even suggested that the right powerful men can make us a great nation, whether we the people are disciples of Christ or not. I don't know about you, but the only powerful man that I allow to speak on my behalf is Jesus. I also do not believe that he needs an earthly mediator. Why would anyone even consider questioning such a stance? Part of it is the sense that Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8 compel us to take political action. The logic goes like this. We as a nation, or a state, or a city, are ashamed of Christ unless we have a manger outside the mayor's office each winter, or inscribed monoliths of the Ten Commandments at the courthouse, for example. The interpretation is that if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Well, it, it means that the actions of a judge or the legislature, or an executive order, are more important than what any one believer does when he or she takes action by faith. Any one believer. Anyone. What does Jesus mean by anyone? Rather than the concise quote you typically see, our reading today quotes Mark's gospel in context. It begins with the disciples talking with Jesus during their trip to Caesarea Philippi. It doesn't end until just before the transfiguration. Everything prior to Mark chapter 9 verse 2 is within the same context, the same conversation. There are several facets of this passage that are important. Jesus begins the conversation by asking, Who do you say I am? He then proceeds to share both about his upcoming death and resurrection. He ends the discussion with a warning that he would repeat at the Olivet Discourse and on trial before the Sanhedrin. The kingdom of God will come in judgment with great power before the very eyes of those hearing him speak, and the utter and absolute destruction of the temple and much of Jerusalem itself would be a sign. What sign? What did Jesus' last prophecy fulfill? Let's look at Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 23, verse 37, through chapter 24, verse 3, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point at the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? 
Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, saying privately, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Matthew's Gospel Jesus answered them by describing what would happen just a few decades later, when Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, leveled the city, and dispersed the few who survived the onslaught. Simply put, Jesus was talking about the end of the Jewish age. The judgment that did fall, as foretold, would end temple worship and sacrifices. It would mark a full transition of early Christianity from a Jewish splinter group to a faith for all who would believe. And it would end the era of God trying to speak to nations through the nation of Israel. Abraham's seed is Christ himself, as Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 clearly emphasizes. The Hebrew term seed is singular rather than plural. Abraham's seed is planted in the hearts of all those who accept this gift of God by faith. Here are Paul's words. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. The letter to Galatians. Are we made right with God as a nation? No. We are made right with God as individuals, by personally denying ourselves and picking up our cross to follow Him. It does not make sense to say that our country can be ashamed of Christ. Jesus is not looking for our national allegiance. In fact, I openly question whether we grieve him deeply by trying to replace the love of Christ in our hearts with the right set of laws and ordinances. We act as though we need laws to lead us, rather than Jesus, and what he did for us on the cross. How then would we continue to be a Christian nation? Well, that question raises several other questions. What does it mean to be a Christian nation? How would a Christian nation conduct itself? Can a Christian nation do anything to overcome the faithlessness of its citizens? I do not want to engage in a long and distracting conversation about our national history and heritage. It may be enough to look at two simple facts. First, many of the original settlers came here as Christians and wanted to establish a home where they could freely worship Jesus as Lord. Second, Nearly all of the Christians fleeing religious persecution, by an incredibly large margin, were fleeing the persecution of other Christians. Protestants from France and Italy fled Roman Catholicism. Catholics from elsewhere in Europe fled Calvinism and its branches. Methodists and others fled the government-run Church of England. So when we stop to assert our rights as Christians living in a Christian nation— which part of our heritage are we speaking from? Are we the powerful who want to use our majority in government to persecute others? Or are we the early American colonists who fled from such tyrants, seeking to establish a new home where they could live in tolerance and harmony with others, a place where freedom reigns in part because we all don't have to think alike about everything? Just because our country to the degree that it started as a Christian nation, was founded on tolerance, doesn't make it a good idea. Perhaps the time for tolerance has ended. Maybe we would be better served 
if indoctrination was the rule by which powerful leaders governed? I don't think so. Events between approximately 33 AD and 73 AD showed us that God forever broke his relationship with nations and tribes and established a personal, person-to-person relationship with Christ instead. So are we doing the hard work by picking up our crosses? Or are we seeking an an easier approach, like electing the right leaders and passing the right laws? The truth is that by trying to let government address the command that we not act as if we're ashamed of our Savior, well, it takes us down a dead-end road. It might just be a road in the wrong direction, too. What is a Christian nation to do, then? Well, we should set aside our foolish pride. That includes nationalist pride, but it also includes religious pride. We need to set ourselves aside and stop pretending that anything we, or we the people, can do will grant us salvation. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Can I really be implying that most of what you hear from religious political action committees represents an utter lack of faith? It is fear, and not faith, that leads some to insist that governments and courts endorse their religion. The story it tells to the nations is that Christianity cannot thrive without such an endorsement. If asked to stand side by side with atheism and Islam in the marketplace of ideas, well, let's just say we lack the confidence that Paul displayed in Acts chapter 17. Here are verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. 
Being, then, the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The Acts of the Apostles, ascribed to Luke. So did Paul completely fail, because the entire Areopagus didn't endorse his views on God? No. Part of the reason we even have a Bible today is because Paul succeeded. He didn't reach everyone, and he wasn't interested in taking control of their city-state. He succeeded because a few became followers. Individuals. The apostle stood before the greatest thinkers in Athens, shared his faith, and explained his convictions. Would we do the same? Or would we attempt to pass a law that only the gospel could be spoken? Paul changed lives that day because he listened. He used his two ears and one mouth in proper proportion. I fear that some Christians who speak so boldly about our Christian nation would refuse to speak at all unless they know they are the only ones talking. Maybe the times and situations are much more difficult today. After all, Islam didn't even exist when Jesus walked the earth. Our Lord was speaking to an inherently religious audience as well. God had spent generations trying to make himself known to the Jews, and that had to present advantages. Listen again to what Jesus said. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Are we living among an adulterous and sinful generation today? Clearly so, I'd say. Jesus was speaking to just such a generation as well. He warned the generation of his day that they would not taste death before they had seen God's judgment come with great power and fury. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned his true followers about that judgment. He told them to flee to the mountains rather than hiding behind the walls of the fortified city as human wisdom would have led them to do. He described the city surrounded by an army bent on totally annihilating their temple, their society, and their way of life. All of those events took place within 40 years of his resurrection. What was left in the rubble where not one stone stood upon another? Nothing less spectacular than an entirely new relationship with God. Jesus established the possibility of personal faith. We don't need a high priest. We don't need a human king. We don't need an extensive set of laws or the judges to administer them. We only need Jesus. Each of us. Any one of us. That is an altogether different thing than our government or our nation. How should American Christians display their faith in a way that makes it clear that we are not ashamed of Jesus and everything he did and taught? 
do we invest our energy in electing Christian leaders who will protect our Christian traditions and marginalize as much as possible all non-believers? Or do we take personal, individual responsibility for reaching out to others by quite literally doing what the early church meant by sharing our faith? My faith in Christ does not need to be protected by courts, cabinets, or committees. Neither does yours. We have a Savior who is more powerful than any enemy. Amen. Hi there. This is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. August tends to be the time of year, every four years, where political parties get together and hold conventions on the eve of the presidential elections. We'll hear a lot of speeches. We'll hear speeches from liberals on the Democratic side of, of the convention you know, game, where perhaps without invoking the name of Jesus, we'll call for the kind of social justice Jesus asked. We'll hear conservatives on the Republican side of this convention game, invoking the name of Jesus Christ in ways that perhaps Jesus Christ never had in mind. I've spoken before about this in inappropriate conversations. Jesus doesn't have anything to say about a lot of the principal planks that you'll find in the Republican Party's platform. What are we to make of that? Well, one of the things I think we can do to help use the political dialogue we're going to be thrust into hearing whether we want it or not is to answer the question, who gets it and who doesn't? Who understands who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus meant and why it was important? You can almost tell by the answer to this question. What does Jesus mean when he says, anyone if any one of you is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you before God. Any one is not a group. When someone tells you that by that passage, Jesus meant our nation, that we need to be a Christian nation. We need to have Christian laws. We need to do things as a community. We're the new Israel. We're the new chosen people. Well, you know that their words are not of Jesus. And they're probably not of God. Jesus spends it in a different way. He asks questions of individuals and even somebody that he could at one moment celebrate for understanding who he really is, like Peter, could turn around one moment later and say, get behind me, Satan, you've got it wrong. It's not wrong to rebuke Christian brothers and sisters who have forgotten who Jesus is and why his words matter. It's not wrong to make sure that we're using proper pronouns when we interpret Scripture. And it's also not wrong for us to ask ourselves the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, as America in so many ways seems to have done, and lose your soul? This is not something we do as a nation. A nation doesn't have a soul, but each individual certainly does. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I can't say I knew what it meant back then, y'all, but I sure do now. 
Father God, I am clay in your hands. I want to stay that way through all life's demands. Cause they chip and they nag and they pull at me. And every little thing I make up my mind to be. Like I'ma be a daddy who's in the mix. And I'ma be a husband who stays legit. And I pray that I'm an artist who rises above. The road that is wide and filled with self Everything that I see draws me. Though it's only in you that I can truly see. But it's a feast for the eyes of no blow to purpose And I'm a little kid in a three-ring circus I don't wanna gain the whole world And lose my soul The clip I played just before the different drummer music today is from our different drummer, Toby McKeon, better known by the stage name Toby Mac, and perhaps best known as part of the trio of musicians who made up the group DC Talk. I'm going to speak about Toby Mac both by himself as an artist and as part of the group DC Talk, and I wanted to start by calling out that the song that was just played, Lose Your Soul, is a Toby Mac solo song, and the clip is from the live album released in 2008 called Alive and Transported. It was released both as a CD and a DVD at the same time. And I really enjoy the live performance, although the original studio cut is very good as well. And it actually is one of the musical moments that persuaded me that I could make the transition from DC Talk to Toby Mac's music after all. Like almost any breakup of musicians into their you know individual parts, I struggled to make that transition at first when DC Talk split, even though I felt like the best DC Talk albums had been a couple albums into the past by the time that breakup finally did occur. Uh, I didn't make a good transition, for example, from the Beatles to uh, being in any way devoted to the individual solo albums of George Harrison, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, or Ringo Starr, any of them. It's not that I don't find things to appreciate in all of those solo efforts. It's just that you're left with this unmistakable impression that the parts are not as good as the whole had been. And this is not different. DC Talk changed the game of contemporary Christian music in 1995. They released their Jesus Freak album. I didn't encounter the band until after that point. I was skeptical of contemporary Christian music all the way through the 1970s and 80s, and I think I probably have good reason for doing that. I don't find any flaw with people who are huge fans of the music released during that time. I just wasn't down with it, for want of a better word. It was in the early 90s, with Sounds of Blackness and their album The Evolution of Gospel, that I really began to hear great promise coming out of what we could call broadly Christian music. And it has been on the kind of the urban side of the coin that I've heard things that I found to be most meaningful, but nothing had prepared me for what DC talk did with their Jesus freak album and particularly the title track that in many ways revolutionized contemporary Christian music and called out things that were about to come 
even in the same year, later that year, in October, when Jars of Clay put out their first solo album and really um, you know, revolutionized the crossover appeal of the music with the song Flood. It was a couple of years after that that Sounds of Blackness really made their definitive statement in um, A Time for Healing, hitting some of the same themes that DC Talk would hit in their um, you know, 1995 album, Jesus Freak, with songs like Colored People, songs calling for reconciliation, songs identifying the unnecessary and harmful racial divide within the family of church and the family of man. I'll get later on to some other artists who came afterward, but the most important thing is they came afterward. To me, DC Talk broke all the rules, mixing rap and rock and frankly hard rock in some places on the album Jesus Freak and asking very hard questions. Even in the title of the songs, uh, songs like What If We Become or What If I Stumble. These were not things that I was hearing a lot of performed at this caliber of performance and production values before. Songs like What If I Stumble, literally asking, what happens to my mission? What happens to my ministry if I make a serious mistake? If I commit uh, a great public failing? These are things which I think for the longest time, you know, contemporary Christian music had been presuming that they, they could perfect their way out of. And we see it still today on the in all of the prosperity gospel preachers that if you just do this, this, and this, including giving to my ministry, then you know God will protect you from all well stumblings. Not really true. The thing that resonated with me most on the title track of Jesus Freak was the line, "The high and lofty see me as weak because I won't live and die by the power they seek." This is the kind of self-sacrificial language in songwriting that couldn't be further away from prosperity gospel to begin with. Now, why am I singling out Toby Mac instead of the entire band DC Talk? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, initially, I had trouble trying to get my mind around whether to be a follower and supporter of DC Talk's music. The first album or two I thought were a little bit up and down. The uh, album before Jesus Freak I thought was very good, but I was still sort of thrown by the idea at this point in time that there was a separation between the the name on the front of the album cover and the musicianship behind it. I was used to the rock and roll paradigm where the rock musicians wrote their own songs, played their own songs, and sang their own songs. And in the case of DC Talk, what you basically have is three singers, some collaboration on the songwriting. But the reason I'm singling out McKeon is that most of the songwriting, most of the time, although not always, was done by McKeon and producer Mark Heimerman. Now, Heimerman has a great reputation in contemporary Christian music with variety of uh, supporting credits that cut across the, you know, the music industry on the contemporary Christian side. You'll see names like Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, Rich Mullins, Avalon, uh, just a, a big variety of names. And DC Talk, to me, their name appears probably more often than a lot of the others. And a different kind of music than the rest. So I think there's a lot of McKeon's influence in the songwriting. And, of course, collaboration with the other members of the band, leading them in that direction that they, you know, they went in musically. The group has talked in interviews about what a profound difference it was, the music on the Jesus Freak album versus the kind of things that they were singing about just one album earlier on Free at Last. And 
it wasn't that they were a completely different band with a completely different sound, but they definitely took a turn. DC Talk's name came from actually a nickname that Toby Mac had before he took on the nickname Toby Mac. The three members, Toby McKeon, Michael Tate, and Kevin Mac Smith, met in Lynchburg, Virginia. And if the name of the city rings any bells, we're talking about Liberty University here. We're talking about people who were actively involved with uh, Jerry Falwell and uh, his campus experience and his campus ministry. Some of them, in fact, even singing, you know, on the, like the Jerry Falwell show as a sort of, you know, vocalist in his gospel group. So there's a lot that would have put me off of DC Talk early on in their career, because I don't think that I necessarily wanted to have anything to do with Liberty University, to be you know, perfectly blunt about it. But DC Talk actually meant, you know, McKeon coming from, you know, a suburb of Washington, D.C., was, uh, got the nickname because, you know, he was the, the D.C. talker. He was the person in the group most likely to rap than to sing, or at least, you know, more likely to rap than the other two were. Kevin Mac Smith was the one most likely to go into, you know, vocal flourish. And the real backbone of the band in terms of you know, carrying the melody and, and being the consistent voice among the three was, was Michael Tate. This is a racially diverse group committed to racially diverse issues and also committed to Christian orthodoxy in a way that wasn't polluting the message of the gospel with all of these social issues that you would see so often, probably throughout the campus experience that they grew up in. They were told early on that trying to mix rap, uh, hip hop and R&B with Christian music was a bad thing. My guess is that more people heard the gospel message through DC Talk in the decade to follow than ever heard it on Jerry Falwell's TV show. So I had to get past the fact that the people who were playing the music, performing the instruments, most of the time were not, you know, Toby, Michael, and Kevin. They were the front of the band. And really, if, you know, McKeon hadn't been such an influential writer of their material, I still might have not have been able to get on board. I wouldn't have been able to handle, you know, you know, the respect that I needed to give them as a band if they weren't responsible for the ideas that they were singing. But even in concert, you'd find that to some degree the musicians were more or less anonymous. If you look on Wikipedia, it only seems right to me to give credit to the band that's cited there. Musicians like Jason Halbert, Otto Price, Mark Townsend, Martin Upton, Brent Barkas, Will Denton, Marvin Sims, and the choreography by the, under the heading Grits. These are people I don't feel like we think are uh, common names. They're not the names that jump out at you, even if you're a fan of the band, when you think of DC Talk. DC Talk is the front three. And it's, again, a little bit like country music. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time dwelling on Garth Brooks as being anything more than Garth Brooks. And we don't really necessarily attach ourselves to who those supporting musicians are, including supporting musicians who've been with him throughout his career. This is a similar situation. Toby Max credits as an individual musician starting in 2001 include the releases Momentum, Welcome to Diverse City, Portable Sounds, Tonight, Christmas in Diverse City, and the upcoming release Eye on It. It doesn't include remix releases for most of his originally released material and the live album that I referred to earlier. This is a, a musician who has demonstrated consistently, both within the band DC Talk and as a solo artist, that he understands the importance of delivering both high-quality performance and songwriting 
with the message. The biggest mistake that I feel like Toby Mac has been a leader in correcting from the music that I was hearing as contemporary Christian songs when I was in high school and early in college and something like 10, 15 years later was the notion that back then the message was all that mattered. It could sound like rock, but not really be rock as long as the message was right. This is almost how I would describe a group like Striper. No, in the case of DC Talk, you're dealing with that real deal, that authentic element, and you put DC Talk together with Sounds of Blackness, which when I was working in the record stores, we, mer- we merchandised in R&B, despite the fact that they had a great deal of gospel inside their music, as opposed to DC Talk, which we merchandised in Contemporary Christian, despite the fact that they had a lot of R&B ideas and some hip-hop elements inside their music. Now, no one would confuse a casual listening of DC Talk with a rap album. That's not the point. But I think the main thing they were interested in was breaking down all of those barriers, setting aside all those ideas, and creating a message that is welcoming and inclusive. That's, that's a much bigger idea, with much bigger consequences than anything that you could prepackage and put out there safely as you know, one more contemporary Christian artist that both mom and the kids can listen to in the car together. I rather like the fact that my mom wouldn't have liked anything about the Jesus Freak album in 1995. And Toby Mac has an awful lot to do with why. I think it's too easy to assume that the attitude that I bring and the scriptures that I've shared make me unique. I do not believe that I am unique. I think it would be a big mistake for me to convey that. It would, on one level, be potentially an act of pride from which I absolutely must repent. On the other hand, I think that it's an act of compartmentalization for others to pick me out of the crowd, set me aside, and say, well, he's not like the rest. That's unfair. There are pockets of truly conservative Orthodox Christianity throughout denominations. People who have read the Bible taken Jesus seriously, and, you know, done it his way. Recognize the importance of what it means to say, I am not ashamed of Jesus. I am not ashamed of Jesus by hiding myself inside my nation and believing in a group. I'm willing to be alone. But the truth is, I'm not alone. There are a lot of individual believers all over who feel the same way. I want to end today with a quick quote from a Roman Catholic set of believers who I think would agree with everything that I've had to share. And you could tell by the way they welcome people to their church. This is a uh, document from a brochure that you can find like inside a church bulletin from Our Lady of Lords Catholic Community. Because I found it online, I'm not 100% sure exactly which city they're from, but it you know, breaks with my normal tradition of being you know, pretty much Protestant in my perspective. This is a Catholic church who totally gets it. Here's what they've written. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, gay, filthy rich, dirt poor, or you know anglaise. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you sing like Andrea Bocelli 
or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope or haven't been in church since little Joey's baptism. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or if you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We offer a special welcome to those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or because grandma is in town and wanted to go to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now. Had religion shoved down your throat as a kid or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers and doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. Guess what? That's what Jesus would do. Thanks for listening. may be right for you. In clinical studies, anomalies interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap out loud at work to the amusement of co workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. 
You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A N O M A L Y podcast.com. Just one one hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by jewelbeat.com. Music by jewelbeat.com.